Hello, and welcome to the Hooked on Health podcast. This is your host, Dr. Sean T. Lorden, and author of The 11 Winning Secrets to Stop Aging in Its Tracks. Enjoy the show. All right, so uh, welcome, Dr. Haley Borgstrom. She's joining us today to talk about all things elbow, and we might touch a little bit on shoulder and uh, and wrist a little bit. But thanks so much for joining us, Haley, uh, for an episode here on, on Hooked, up, Hooked on Health. Absolutely, I'm so happy to be here, Sean. Thanks so much for having me today. Yeah, so let's just tell the audience a little bit about um, you know your path to becoming a, a sports medicine physician, and uh, a little bit about your passions and, and and what sort of what who is your perfect patient. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, similar to a lot of us in the sports medicine field, I think my own injuries, you know, playing sports growing up and playing basketball through college really kind of uh, put me on this path. I um, went to medical school because I was very interested in orthopedic surgery. I had unfortunately had to have a couple shoulders and a, a knee, you know, an ACL like many women basketball players have. Um, and so, uh, that's what initially, you know, got me interested in going to medical school. I had, you know, a background in, um, exercise physiology and biomechanics in terms of kind of my undergraduate and postgraduate training. Um, so it was kind of a natural fit. And as I got into medical school, I, I started to explore different routes. I found, um, the field of PM&R, physical medicine and rehabilitation, which is a non-operative field and um, and is very, you know, is, is kind of a smaller field, but allows very kind of broad opportunities, um, really treats kind of any, any um, impairment or disability, you know, as small as a rolled ankle, a sports, you know, kind of sports injury to brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, et cetera. Um, and from there, you know, I did my, I came out here to Boston to do my residency um, here at Spalding and Harvard. And then I stayed on and did my sports medicine fellowship um, here at Spalding and, you know, with a lot of the uh, mass general providers here. Um, and I, you know, I've, I stayed on. Um, I'm originally from California, both, both my husband and I. So it's saying, you know, it's, it's saying something, I think that, uh, that we're here, you know, we decided, we, we decided to uh, suffer through the winters just for the, I think, um, the quality of uh, medical care that's available here, the patients, you know, that I have the pleasure of taking care of on a, on a daily basis, and just the resources and the mentorship. And, you know, um, it's, a, it's a wonderful program to be a part of. So um, that's just a little bit about me, kind of my path to medicine. Couldn't be happier, you know, where I landed in terms of um, non-operative sports medicine and um, really trying to incorporate both clinical practice as well as, you know, the research side of things, trying to advance what we know and how we treat patients in an evidence-based way. So. That's great. That's yeah. great. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, so, you know, I think when people think of sports medicine physician, they, a lot of people's minds go straight to surgery, right? Sure. So, you know, even my mind too. And I think the, you yeah. know, the PM, you know, the, the physical medicine field is sort of really emerging as, you know, as a juggernaut in, you know, kind of clinical, really clinically honing down on the cases that don't need to be operated on. Um, talk to the audience a little bit about how you work hand in hand with orthopedic surgery and with like PT, OT, whatever, um, to get the yeah, best. That's a great, great question. Um, one of the things that I love about my field and my training is that, um, I'm so used to working in, you know, a multidisciplinary 
team kind of approach to medicine. Um, it fits me, me and my personality well. I think just growing up playing team sports and loving that type of environment. And so it's an easy transition for me, you know, kind of onto the other side of things, you know, um, not as the athlete anymore, but as the, as the provider. And um, we, like I was touching on a little bit earlier, we just have such a supportive and integrated and multidisciplinary team really here um, in sports medicine where every day, you know, I'm in the same office as our orthopedic surgeon. So I know them well, they know us, us and myself well. Um, I know what their, you know, what their special interests are, what their areas of strength are, and they know mine. So it helps, um, you know, in terms of directing patients to the right person in a more individualized way. Um, and then right across the hall from us here are sports physical therapists. Um, we have really, uh, with the, with the leadership of um, Miho Tanaka, one of our orthopedic surgeons, Kelly McGinnis, another one of our, um, the PM&R uh, sports medicine providers, they've really started to develop a, a women's sports medicine program here uh, that really integrates other areas of medicine. So endocrinology, you know, thinking about the mental health piece and the psychology piece, dietary pieces, all this, you know, so, so it's just, um, it's fun to work as part of a team. And I think honestly that it, it just creates a better experience for the patient um, when everyone's on the same page and you have multiple people thinking about the patient in different ways. Yeah, with different specialties. And I, and I think that's, yeah. I mean, that's truly a patient-centric model of care. You know, Absolutely. That's, that's, where, that's what we aim for. Yep. That's great. You know, let's talk about you specifically and, and you know, what, what is your niche? Like if you were to carve out something that you love to see, obviously you're a basketball player, but, yeah. and you, you had an ACL yourself, like what, yeah. who is your, like, what do you, I mean, obviously you can treat anything, I'm sure, but what do you yeah. And I always struggle with that because I do, I love the variety that I'm able to see. You know, a lot of our um, surgeons are so brilliant and wonderful and, you know, they specialize in maybe one or two joints or, you know, maybe more than that, but they really focus in, you know, it's a hyper special medicine has become kind of hyper specialized. And um, one of the things I love about my job and my kind of area of practice is that I, I really can keep it diverse and broad, but um, I'm working on kind of expanding the basketball piece and, you know, um, really trying to reach out to kind of more athletes with those specific types of injuries. I think it's great and important when your provider knows a lot about your sport. Um, and I'm always trying to learn more, you know, about new sports and the, the biomechanics and, you know, the specific um, injury risks that affect rehabilitation, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm trying to work on that basketball piece. And then I just, I, I love the knee. Um, we're here today to talk about the elbow. I love the elbow. I see a ton of it. I see a ton of hip. I, you know, I see all joints. Um, but I think within, within the sports medicine world, especially with the research, you know, in my kind of special interest research piece, I'm, I am interested in kind of female athletes and any, you know, specific, um, uh, needs, you know, that they may have, um, that, that may be unmet, you know, um, in, in, in certain other clinics or uh, areas of medicine. I'm interested in adaptive athletes, adaptive sport athletes, um, athletes with di disabilities and, um, and kind of, you know, 
trying to make sport and exercise accessible for everyone. Um, and then, you know, I'm just, I, I, I'm, I'm developing a special interest in shockwave and, you know, we may, we may talk a little bit about that, you know, later in the podcast, but, um, you know, trying to kind of, um, expand the role that, 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 that can play in addition to a lot of the other regenerative, you know, injection options that we offer for patients that just aren't getting better with, with kind of our standard, standard of care medical treatment. Yeah, so we're definitely going to do a deep dive into that later. Great. Um, we work with a, a podiatry group, actually, that's close to us, Central Mass. Um, and uh-huh. actually, Dr. Savia joined us a couple of months ago. And uh, they do shockwave with great success to the Achilles, plantar fascia. Yeah. Fat, you know, um, there are certain sh- like shoulder calcific tendonitis. Absolutely. Um, you know, elbow, right? So things. Yeah, that- lateral elbow, probably one of the, I mean, definitely one of the strongest area, areas of uh, literature supporting the use of, you know, shockwave, as well as PRP and other kind of orthobiologic um, types of injections. But yeah, awesome applications in the foot and ankle. Um, just really love the option, especially for people who are trying to stay active through their treatment. Um, you know, whereas some of the other injection options require a little bit more of downtime. So it's kind of cool, you know, for, for people that are either in training that are, you know, that again, just want to stay active, maybe they're in season. Um, so it's just another, I think, tool, you know, that in our tool belt that we should be able to offer, you know, um, people when, when appropriate, of course. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. Um, you know, and then you touched on the female athlete piece. I mean, that's so, it really is almost like treating a totally different population. You know, I think, so we have two women's health specialists here, um, you know, and the specialists, the specialty here kind of focuses more on pelvic floor. Yeah. You're talking about a women's rehab program or especially the teenage female athlete. Absolutely. The adolescent totally athlete. Yeah. yeah. Totally different monster than, uh, you know, yeah. other athletes see. And I think yeah, absolutely. as a provider is so important and uh, there, it's just, it's unbelievable that the struggles and the different, you know, challenges that young females have versus young males. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, the, the ACL rates and things like that. Yeah, but, um, absolutely. You know, we might, we might, and I think we're going to touch on joint laxity a little bit too, especially with sure. the gymna- gymnasts, the performing athletes, um, you know, elbow dislocations, things like that. But mm-hmm. uh, I just, you know, I, I think it's really cool that, that you, you have a really, you know, an interest in that. And um, thank you. you know, yeah. It's really exciting. Know, yeah. And that people should know that, you know, there are specialists that, that work with, you know, young adolescent female athletes and not just. Yeah, absolutely. Bring them my way. You know, I'm always happy to um, try to help coordinate that care and, and think about just the whole person, you know, um, cause like you said, there are unique aspects to a, a, a female or a woman um, that, are, that are unique to them, whether it's, you know, uh, specific anatomic differences, biomechanical differences, the way that we recruit muscle and turn it on and turn it off. Um, and then of course, kind of the hormonal piece. So um, all, all just so important to keep in mind. Um, it's just, again, like you said, that patient-centered um, individualized approach. And it's a holistic model too. It's not just driving straight toward a PRP injection or, exactly. you know, you know, you've got consultants from every different specialty field, which is great. Exactly. Um, cool. So let's do a deep dive right into the elbow. What do you think? Do it. Awesome. So talk to me about the common, you know, elbow injuries that you, you typically treat. You know, we, we've got a bunch of golfers and usually this is like golf season. The golfers come in. March, oh, I know it's on the rise. They want the programs. <laughs> but talk to me about, um, Let's just cover the, the common elbow conditions you, you typically see, and then we'll maybe do a little dive into golf. 
Yeah, I would say probably the um, the most common, and you know, we'll. Um, you you mentioned kind of golfer's elbow, tennis elbow, and you know, there's a little it's a little bit of a misnomer, and I know that uh, that's something we're going to touch on today as well. But um, you know, golfers get tennis elbow. And tennis players get, you know, golfer's elbow. Um, uh, it's it's just, you know, based on kind of biomechanics. And it's not always sport related. There's a lot that we do that's repetitive, you know, in our day-to-day lives that, um, that maybe predispose, you know, a person to one or the other, the inside or the outside of the elbow. And so really, I don't even use those terms. I try not to use those terms in my clinic. Because um, again, I think there's a little bit of a misnomer there. Um, I would say, you know, the most common elbow diagnosis that I see and I treat in my clinic is lateral elbow epicondylosis, epicondylitis, um, and, and, or tennis elbow, you know, kind of colloquially. So, um, by far that's the most common elbow condition that I treat in my clinic. I'd say in terms of medial or the inside of the elbow, um, epicondylosis or epicondylitis, uh, much less frequently though, though certainly not uncommon. Um, you know, I'd say probably for every, maybe every 10 or so uh, lateral elbow um, uh, pain, I see maybe one, maybe two medial um, elbow. And, and those are the two most common diagnoses. Other things that I see, you know, are um, elbow arthritis, other tendon, other tendon issues in the area. So, you know, especially in throwing athletes, um, uh, you know, um, uh, triceps, uh, tendinopathy or tendinitis, biceps, distal biceps in the front of the elbow, tendinitis or tendinopathy. And then as you get into, um, you know, like you mentioned before, uh, gymnasts or weight bearing, um, athletes, uh, I think about bone stress injuries, stress fractures. Um, and of course, depending on the age of the athlete, you're either thinking more about the bone or the soft tissues, you know, and, and our skeleton, more skeletally mature, um, athletes, oftentimes it's the soft tissues, the, uh, muscles, the tendons, the ligaments, you know, the UCL and our throwers. Um, and in the more, in the younger athletes, a lot of times it's those growth plates, um, similar mechanisms, but, um, those are all the types of kind of overuse injuries that I see. Um, and it's really a, you know, it's really a mixed bag. I, I, like I said, I just, I, I like to see a lot and I do get to see a lot. And do you get to see much trauma or is it mostly Overuse. Yeah, that's a great. So most of the trauma that I see is kind of sideline um, type trauma. So if I'm covering, you know, a football game or a hockey game or something, you know, something like that, usually collision sport. Um, that's where I see the trauma. Uh, otherwise, trauma is usually filtered kind of through other channels. Since this is, you know, I'm primarily practicing in an outpatient based setting. Most of the trauma goes, you know, to the emergency room or through the kind of urgent care clinics and, and that way. So I do end up seeing a lot of um, kind of sequelae or kind of post-traumatic issues uh, that people are still dealing with after a trauma, say an elbow dislocation or, you know, something like that, fracture. Um, but the, it, it's, you know, lower acuity unless I'm covering at the sideline usually. Sure. Yeah. So contracture or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. Or chronic pain. You know, a lot of times when people have dislocations um, or fractures, you know, they have a period of immobility and they struggle kind of getting range of motion and strength back and, you know, have chronic issues of pain, you know, at least in the, in the kind of 
post, you know, post-acute phase, um, potential nerve involvement, you know, things like that. So, so I'm treating kind of the downstream effects usually um, of, of the traumas, but, you know, I, I, I do, people end up sneaking through every now and then that had falls and, you know, um, and we, you know, we diagnose fractures and, and things like that as well. So um, keeps me on my toes. <laughs> Looking for that stress fracture, right? <laughs> That's right. Or that avulsion. So let's talk about, you know, and I think this, we talked about this a little bit um, in the shoulder piece too, you know, it, it just let's talk about the epicondalgia, right? And the difference between an osis and an itis yeah. and really the tendon changes. Cause you know, I think let's get a little nitty gritty here so people understand why we're doing yeah. non-operative treatment because the biggest complaint that I get in here, not necessarily complaint, but you know, people come in, my, my elbow hurts, and usually it's an osis, right? It's a, it's a ten, tenocyte death type situation where there's chronic changes to the tissue. And you and I both know the research. It's just, it's so tough to fix that, that lateral elbow joint. You know, unless you're injecting, you're, you're getting some platelet rich plasma in there. You're, you're doing the shock wave. You're doing the dry needling. You're doing something to infarct that tissue to then grow, you know, get some blood flow there. Yeah. So talk to our audience a little bit about, um, you know, what it means to have a tendinopathy or an osis and when it goes on for a long period of time. What are their options to treat it other than surgery, obviously? Really, really, really great point. And I have this conversation every single day in my clinic, at least once a day. Um, and I think it's so important for patients to understand, you know, the difference between the itis and the osis or the opathy. Um, because like you said, it does change the way we think about treating it. And, um, and, and I think that the more patients can understand about the underlying issue, you know, the more they can kind of be empowered to take control of their own care and make sure that they're, you know, finding a treatment plan that's good, that really works for them. So, so in terms of the itis, everyone knows tendonitis. The term tendonitis is used a lot, a lot of times when it's not even appropriate necessarily. Um, the way I think about it is itis is an inflammation. It's usually an acute phase, um, something that's been going on for a very short period of time. And there really, there really is that kind of um, inflammatory response. The tendon is inflamed. You know, um, the cells that are drawn to the area are those inflammatory mediators and pain. You know, cytokines. It just, you know, there's a cytokine influx. There's just um, that's the inflammatory cascade. And um, there may or may not be, you know, kind of acute kind of partial tears to the tendons, things like that. But the overall organization of the tendon is usually intact because it's, you know, it's, it's more of a short term um, kind of inflammatory response. And that is in complete contrast to the osis or the opathy, the tendinosis or the tendinopathy, which is a chronic change, like you were mentioning. And, um, and really the primary pain generator, or the reason that it hurts is not an inflammation or an itis. It's the fact that the tendon, um, the structure of the tendon is not what it used to be. Um, the organization of the fibers of the tendon are, are, um, are not organized. They become very disorganized. The, um, the, the quality of the cells are, are less than, you know, a normal cell. Um, in addition to the disorganization, you get sprouting of, of abnormal blood vessels in the area, as well as abnormal nerves in the area, which can contribute to hypersensitivity and pain in and of itself. Um, so a lot of what we're doing, I think, you know, is really 
is, is, is even targeting some of those abnormal nerve sprouting, you know, a lot of the kind of secondary stuff or the soft tissue work and even the strengthening, you know, the eccentric strengthening piece and things I, I, I think are targeting all of these, um, all of these chronic degenerative changes that occur with the osis or the apathy picture. And if you think about, say, for example, steroid injections, which are just a potent anti-inflammatory, um, you know, I think that the argument, um, the argument there is that why are you using an anti-inflammatory, potent anti-inflammatory in the chronic phase when the primary pain generator, the primary issue is not inflammation, it's disorganization, it's, it's poor tissue health. And, um, and, and that's what guides a lot of my and my colleagues, you know, hesitance amongst many other things, you know, the side effects of steroids, things like that, in using some, some different types of um, treatment options. Uh, so, so I do think it's super important. Thank you for bringing up this point, um, you know, of the acute phase versus the more chronic phase and, and how and why we choose different treatments. Yeah. And do you think, and this might be a, you know, I always tell people, you know, as soon as you feel something, if it's been a two weeks, you know, you can try to manage on your own, rub it a little bit, whatever, you know, cause people always pull me aside on the golf course. They'll say, Hey, listen, <laughs> right. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, at a party, yeah. you go to a party, go to dinner, be like, Haley, my elbow hurts. And you're like, yeah. okay, take some ibuprofen and call me in two weeks. Right. So, yeah. you know, that's usually what I say, but we want to hit this before there's chronic drastic tissue change. Right. Absolutely. So, but a lot of times it's the guys that it's like, it happens every year around the same time. They pick up the golf clubs, they, they start swinging again. And it, you know, there comes the, the itis part. So I feel like sometimes you get the layers of the itis on top of the osis. Absolutely. It gets, gets kind of foggy, but you know, to your point, you know, they've done studies where, you know, during that osis phase where there's really, you know, there's no inflammatory cells. It mm -hmm. is not inflamed. So if you're going to hit it with a cortisone shot, it's not going to get the results that you're looking for. Exactly. And you're still exposing the patient then to the potential downsides of the steroid, which include actually weakening of the tissue, at least transiently and potentially increasing risk for, you know, um, partial tears or even ruptures, which from a non-operative standpoint is something that, you know, keeps me up at night. I don't want to make a patient worse. Um, that's my whole thing. I'm supposed to be helping people to get better. And so, um, you know, thinking about the risks and benefits of all these different types of, you know, treatment options is just so, so important. But yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. If this can be, if it can be nipped in the bud, um, you know, before it gets to that chronic phase, of course, that is, that is the most um, ideal situation. Uh, and a lot of times I agree, there's the chronic underlying kind of smoldering osis uh, and then you get these flares, you know, where you, you do have a, a little bit more of an acute inflammatory uh, phase uh, in addition to the chronic underlying tissue disease. So again, these are all things that, um, I mean, I think, you know, I think about and I talk with patients about on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, so let's just dive in. Let's talk about the treatment options, right. For that, mm -hmm. that osis, you know, yeah. and, and I want you to def define the person who's, you know, best, you know, give me that clinical mm -hmm. case. Yeah, so absolutely. Male, female, what do they do for activity? Yeah. How long they had the pain. Let's dive into that. Yeah. So I, you know, I have, you know, I have kind of um, generic or, you know, kind of treatment algorithms in my mind, steps that I like to go through. And in general, I like to progress from least invasive to most invasive, right? Um, to, to kind of most evidence-based to, you know, more, um, 
more experimental or you know um, slightly less evidence based uh, and 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 I also keep in mind out of pocket costs for the patient because I want to minimize those when at all possible um, and so you know someone comes into the office uh, they've had you know a couple months of pain on the outside of their elbow. Uh, of course, I go through a history and exam um, and say, I think it's consistent with lateral epicondylosis. Um, a lot of what I'm doing at that initial visit is just education, you know, like the conversation that we've been having here today um, in terms of what the diagnosis is, you know, maybe biomechanical issues that might have predisposed them, you know, certain activities that may have predisposed them. And then I'm initiating kind of a conservative treatment plan. And um, what I mean by conservative is I'm not sticking with any anyone with needles usually the first you know the first time no, I meet not how you say hello you know just sticking with a I don't I don't do that I mean you know I believe in being a little more cordial <laughs> um, but yeah so so what that what that treatment plan usually looks like is um, getting our sports physical therapists um, involved early um, and and whether and that also depends on kind of the patient in terms of how much time they have available to them, resources they have available to them, insurance coverage, et cetera, because certainly there are patient, there, there, there are uh, self-directed things that patients can do to address these types of problems on their own at home as well. And I think that's, you know, um, I think that's reasonable for a lot of people too. And so what that looks like is kind of the standard, you know, rice, right? Everyone knows that rest, ice, compression, elevation. Um, so rest does not mean immobilization. Rest means relative rest. You know, the activities that are provoking your injuries are cut back or eliminated for, you know, a short period of time as you allow the area to begin to heal. Um, ice, heat, you know, other kind of mod modalities, soft tissue work massage at home. Um, compression, you know, thinking about, um, it, you know, that's not like a rolled ankle where you get, you know, a, usually a big effusion or something like that, and you're needing to get the swelling out of the area, but it does, you know, it, it does, it can get a little bit um, of swelling in the area. And using things like, you know, um, braces, uh, either, you know, at, at kind of the forearm counterforce braces, uh, and especially neutral wrist splints, especially at night, uh, I think is absolutely necessary for kind of the initial management of, of, of these, these two diagnoses, both medial and lateral um, uh, elbow pain. And, and really then, it, really then is, is kind of like thinking about what the biomechanical issue was that predisposed the patient to get this in the first place. Because if we just treat it, and then, like you said, every spring they go back and, you know, the weather gets nice and it just comes back. If we can't fix the underlying issue, which is usually um, muscle weakness mm -hmm. uh, at the end of the day, muscle weakness and or, you know, poor um, sport biomechanics, um, then it's likely going to just flare up off and on over time. And that's where I rely a lot on my, you know, physical therapy um, colleagues and specialists who can um, create individualized plans of care, you know, advancing from kind of the, you know, more of the um, isometric type strengthening all the way through, you know, it, to incorporating the eccentric training, which is really going to build the, the muscle strength there and allow the muscle to absorb force rather than the tendon 
going in and, you know, attaching at the bone, if the muscle can absorb more force, then the tendon has to see less of it. And um, the tendon can kind of heal and see force in a good way, um, a healthy way that allows the tendon to remain healthy and kind of remodel in an appropriate way. Um, so these are all things that, you know, I absolutely have to be included, right? I mean, there's no skipping steps is what I tell patients a lot um, because, because it, you know, the work you put in is going to equal kind of the, the result that you get. And one size doesn't fit all, you know, and again, that's why I just love having um, just such knowledgeable sports physical therapy and physical therapy colleagues because they can really advance patients in an individualized way. And, you know, if they have other pre-existing issues, maybe they have arthritis, some arthritis in the elbow or in the wrist, maybe they have, you know, arthritis in their neck and, and some, you know, pinched nerves and things like that. And, and activities may need to be modified, right. To, um, to allow a patient to succeed and do them appropriately. So, um, so, so that's all non-negotiable, I think. <laughs> you know, so that's a big plate for a lot of people to eat, you know, so I think that when they hear all of that, they're like, whoa, and then, whoa, it's just my know, elbow hurts. All this, and, and then they're searching for braces on Google and yada, yada. So yeah. let's touch, there's a couple things that I want to pick, you know, so, I mean, it's just, you know, those are all great points, right? So it's really multifaceted. Yes. Um, and, you know, I'd love to get your take on the compression piece, you know, because that's kind of yeah. a hot question, right? So compression approximately over the EC, you know, ECRB, um, mm -hmm. you know, um, and, you know, RL, uh, you know, bodies, the, the proximal portion there. And then, you know, how you explain to people that it's really a wrist, a wrist exactly. problem, you know, so the pain is here, but it's really, we need to keep your wrist neutral. Yeah. Let's talk about that. And then the other piece too, that I feel like can't go unmentioned is just the stress on the tendon, right? So addressing that muscle length, you know, mid belly, finding the trigger points, doing the soft, mm -hmm. soft tissue, and really this goes throughout the body. Um, that's something they don't really touch on really in PT school either. They, they say, okay, here's the stretches, here's whatever. And then they, you have like a one, you know, I went to Northeastern, they did like one lab on like massage. <laughs> I'm like, what is this? So you have to, you know, I did a ton of con ed just between, you know, yeah. assisted and dry needling, anything yeah. you can do to help improve muscle links that it's not pulling on that. Pulling. Tendon, right? Exactly. Right. So you, and that's a huge piece of any tendinopathy. And it's so hard to get the get the patient buy-in when it kills to do the eccentrics, you know, you yes. think of the Achilles, you think about, you know, the, the elbow, it's just such, it's the people are in so much pain, Haley, that when you're like, yeah. okay, here's this five pound weight, just slowly drop it. They want to punch you in the face. Right. <laughs> you know, like, no, oh, I get it. Start somewhere. So, yeah. and again, how it's tied to posture, right? So I've never seen somebody with a five out of five external rotation group come in, mm -hmm. you know, yes. 100%. So let's talk about how that all kind of, yeah kind of come, comes in and it's like 17 questions in one. Haley. Yeah, no, that's great though. I love it. Um, but the wrist, you know, you know compression piece and, and what you recommend for folks for that compression, if you yeah. can anything and, and go. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you're, you're kind of, you're, um, you're speaking to my heart with, uh, you know, thinking up the chain and thinking down the chain. Right. Um, so, you know, when we're kids, we all sing the song, you know, the, the, the neck bones connected to the shoulder bone, you know, the shoulder bones connected to that. And at the end of the day, it is, and you cannot treat a patient like they are an elbow, right? You have to think, I mean, there are muscles and tendons and bones and nerves that are, you know, originating in the neck, traveling through the shoulder, the arm, crossing the elbow joint, you know, and then all the way down, you know, into the hand. And you have to think about how, 
how the complex biomechanics of this and how certain restrictions, like you said, in the shoulder are going to cause overload down, you know, at the elbow um, and how maybe certain weaknesses that maybe originate from a pinched nerve in the spine may also do the same thing. Um, so you have to... You, you have to think about the patient as a person and as a whole person. Um, and that's the starting point, I think, no matter what. And then, you know, um, as it relates to a lot of times the, you know, so, so the, the places where people get pain here and here are where the muscles and tendons um, originate that actually are responsible. Their primary action is for flexion and extension of the wrist, um, you know, as well as kind of the, the digits uh, is, and pronation and super, supination, which is kind of this movement here of the hand. Um, and so the, they originate up here. This is where the pain is. This is where the problem is. But the function of those muscles is really down, you know, kind of in the hand and wrist. And so limiting these types of movements with things like neutral wrist splints, particularly at night. I mean, you can, you can only, you can control plenty during your day to day, but when you fall asleep at night, who knows, you know, things are getting pinched and right, you know? And so, um, you know, using a neutral wrist splint at night, that's not allowing you to get into this position that's pulling on, you know, one way or the other um, and potentially exhaust, it, it just lets the area rest um, as you are resting. And so that's why the neutral, the neutral wrist splint or, you know, just a slight touch of extension in some cases is, is, um, is useful for people. Um, as it relates to the counterforce braces or the bands that people will use up here, um, what I usually tell people is if it helps, use it. Um, one piece that I'm always kind of thinking about and, and trying to educate and mention is, um, you know, especially for the lateral elbow, the outside of the elbow, which is more common, there's a small subset of people, maybe five, 10% that actually get irritation of that nerve The you know, it's called radial tunnel syndrome that can kind of go along with, uh, with tennis elbow or lateral epicondylosis. And in those cases, the nerve gets irritated, you know, right where kind of the, those muscles are um, and, where, and where the, you know, the chronic kind of degenerative changes are. And so putting a counterforce brace on in those patients can sometimes actually worsen the pain that they feel down into the, into the wrist. And so what I tell people is give it a shot. You know, you can try that during your day, during the day when you're doing maybe some activities that are provocative that you can't avoid if you're at the computer, whatever, um, to try to distribute forces more evenly across those, those muscle tendon units so that the ECRB or, you know, whichever specific portion of the tendon that is usually the most affected um, can, you can decrease the force through that specific one and potentially decrease pain. But if it's making your pain worse, you may, may be one of those people, um, those five to 10% that actually has irritation of that nerve, uh, which is not a motor or a sensory nerve. So you don't get any, um, you know, kind of of those changes it's purely uh, it, it's it, it's a pain sensation and so if that if the counterforce brace is making your pain worse I say stop using it you may be one of those people um, but otherwise I think you know it's fine to it's fine to try it and um, you know the risk benefit makes a lot of sense I think does that answer your question I know there are probably 10 more no it does you know I think that's great you know I think as a PT, you know, I'm always hesitant to, you know, if people say I've got this brace, usually they come in wearing it, Haley. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, if it's not, you know, that's fine. I usually recommend if they're in acute phase, you know, I'll recommend a wrist, a gentle wrist extension. Sport, Absolutely. Um, just to shut things down for two weeks. 
you know, recommend some non-steroidal anti-inflammatory for 10 yes. to 15 days. Um, you know, and then I'll work on the root cause, right? We'll look at the posture, we'll look at everything else. Mm-hmm. But um, let's talk about like the, the interventions, right? So, yes. um, you know, we talked about PRP a little bit. We talked about shockwave. You know, shockwave is not fun. I know it hurts, you know, at the ankle, you know, trying to set, you know, not necessarily sell it, but when I, when I send patients to Ben, you know, I do the dry needling. That yeah. itself hurts enough, you know, with yeah. the with the e-stem through it. So I can't even imagine, you know, oh, the you, you put the e-stem there. through it. Right. Nice. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, so let's talk about the, the different options yeah, that, let's talk. that people have. And, and... So I think along the same lines of dry needling are trigger point injections. Um, so whereas the dry needling, uh, you know, it uses it uses a needle that doesn't, you know, it's a, it does not have a hole in the middle. So you don't like inject through those type of needles. Right. Um, and usually it's a slightly smaller needle than what I would use for say a trigger point injection, but really you're kind of trying to accomplish the same thing. You're going for those trigger points, which are basically tight bands within the muscle that are painful for patients and are contributing to that muscle being kind of in a shortened state, like you were touching on earlier. And so the thought process behind it is, you know, if we can use a needle, either a dry needle or a trigger point injection to help, help, um, you know, create a mechanical twitch response, get that muscle to, to lengthen. And in some cases, actually, you know, there are decreased inflammatory markers with inside the muscle, you know, there's some basic science stuff supporting its use, um, though not a ton of, you know, a ton of high level evidence. Um, but really, you know, in my experience, it can help people a lot. Um, and so um, along the same lines as the dry needling, sometimes I'll do trigger point injections in clinic, which the only difference like I was getting at is that it's a slightly, slightly bigger needle, because I'm going to do uh, an injection along with it. And I'm injecting a local anesthetic, usually just a little bit of lidocaine um, with the thought being that you can sustain it, it can stabilize the muscle membrane a little bit better. So you're not necessarily using it to numb though. Certainly it has that effect in the short term, but it can kind of stabilize the muscle membrane in that lengthened position um, to have more sustained effect basically um, is the thought process there. So that is the least invasive um, injection option that I use in clinic. And I pair that a lot, you know, with ongoing physical therapy. A lot of times, you know, like I said, I have good working relationships with, uh, you know, most of the physical therapists I work with. And so they'll shoot me a message or the patient will, or, you know, um, they'll, they'll mention that they think they could benefit maybe from a little bit of, um, trigger point or dry needling. And so I'll go after, you know, either, either it's the, you know, the, the flexor, um, pronator muscles on the inside or the extensor supinator muscles on the outside, um, again, to try to help lengthen the muscle there. And so super safe, just office-based, you know, maybe a little bit of soreness afterward, but pretty much everyone is a candidate, you know, for that there, you know, unless you had an infection in the skin, um, right over the area, there's not a lot of, you know, contraindications, um, uh, for that necessarily. And then moving on from there in terms of other interventional stuff, I think about, um, you know, a lot of times people come in wanting a steroid shot, uh, wanting a cortisone shot because they're in so much pain. Can we stop there for a second too? Yes. People come in all the time saying, I think, why do you think that is? Like they're self-diagnosed, like they, I need a course. Is it because they talk to their friend? Like why? That's the number one thing. I I think it's just, I think it's just, that is what people know, you know, that it, 
people know have heard of the heard of cortisone shots. They've had family and friends get them, and they do fine. Um, and so it's more familiar, I think. And when we start talking about these other things that are a little less familiar, it's like anything else, right? There's there's a there's a pause. There's a little bit of a hesitancy with something that you're not quite as comfortable with. And cortisone shots just you know, within societies is, is, is language that everyone knows. A lot of, most people know or recognize. So I think that's why. And they just, you know, like I said, they're in so much pain, they want a quick fix. And it is overwhelming to get all of this information and, you know, know that they have probably, you know, at least four to six, six to eight weeks of, of physical therapy ahead of them or strengthening and home exercise program to really get to where they want to be. And so, um, you know, we all want that. We all want the magic bullet. And, um, and I think that's what, um, I think, uh, maybe it, it shouldn't have that reputation. Um, but it does. And so I'm having that conversation a lot too. The only time I think about doing a steroid shot is usually if I either confirm with ultrasound evaluation or with MRI that there's not a significant partial tear um, uh, in the tendon. Because again, I touched on this a little bit earlier, but my worry is that I put steroid in there, which we know transiently has a weakening effect on the tissues. Um, so, so my worry is that I do that injection, which one is not going to be any in the long term is not going to do any good is it would be a very short term thing because there's tons of evidence that for long term greater than, you know, one to three months, there's there is no improvement after a steroid injection compared to, say, a physical therapy program and plus or minus some of these other you know interventions that we offer that may actually boost, you know, effect. And so I, you know, um, if I were to do a one-time steroid injection, it's when I know that the, that the tendon itself isn't about to tear, um, or, you know, is less likely to tear as a result of the steroid in the area. And I do it with ultrasound guidance. So when I do the injection, I make sure that I am not in the tendon. Um, because injecting the steroid into the tendon further increases the risk that you could have a partial tear or rupture. Um, so really I use that to ensure that I am outside of the tendon um, uh, and kind of bathing the area rather than inject, injecting the tendon itself, which is extremely hard to do if you don't have kind of ultrasound guidance. Um, so, so that is how I use my steroids. I use my steroids sparingly in the area and it's always a conversation about risks benefits with the patient. Um, and, and, you know, I think certain patient considerations, you know, like you were talking about earlier, um, uh, beyond steroid, a lot of times they're out of pocket costs and that is not accessible to everyone here in the United States. It's just, how it is. And it's, you know, ethically, I hate that. I, you know, from a more, you know, I, I, I hate, I hate that, um, that I can't offer that not every patient has the same accessibility to all of these treatment options. Um, but certainly that comes into play because a lot of what we're going to talk about from here on out, there are potentially out of pocket costs to patients. And, um, you know, the other thing too, is if someone comes in and they have like a wedding, they want to be able to like, dance at their kid's wedding, or they have a big trip of a lifetime, you know, some big event. Um, maybe I'm a bit of a softy, but, um, you know, I'd be a little more likely to, you know, to use something that I know is going to be a short term, just a band-aid um, to let them enjoy those, you know, those, those events. So that's how I feel about steroid. 
I think you have to consider those things, you know, so for instance, we've got a, you know, a PGA, you know, somebody plays in the PGA, you know, you know, he's got an issue. He needs to play this weekend. Exactly. You're going to treat that player different than you're going to treat somebody else. Right. So, you know, I think that that's, and that's just to get through the bind, like get through a weekend and that might be a cortisone prescription, right. Whatever. Um, but that's different. There's different frames. Every patient is, is different. Um, let's talk about, you know, just a little bit before we dive into the PRP and the shockwave and the out of pocket mm-hmm. and how frustrating it is that you can't just go right. You want to go right there, but then you say yes. you know, 500 bucks a pop or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, that can be a difficult conversation. Right. But yes. let's talk about, again, just diving into the tissue changes and, and sort of how there's a difference between a tendinopathy at the musculotendinous junction mm-hmm. and the tenoosseous junction. And just kind of talk to people about that and, you know, how that affects, because you're doing ultrasound, obviously, diagnostically. How yeah. do those conversations play out in your office and, and how does like how does that affect your treatment? Yeah, I would say more often than not, it's kind of at the, you know, when there are kind of partial tears in the tendons and things like that, it's usually kind of, you know, more on the undersurface of the tendon and it's usually closer kind of right at the anthesis or, you know, right, right where the tendon is kind of beginning to insert there into the bone. Um, more common there than it is at kind of the muscle tendon um, junction, though you have to think about it as a whole unit, you know, and that's why we sometimes combine these, these interventions using trigger points to target the muscle and lengthen that as well as then thinking about how we can target the tendon, you know, the, the, the chronic degenerative changes in the tendon as well. Um, so I think, I think you have to think about both. And, uh, and I think that helps to explain why we do combine, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these treatments. Is that what you're asking? Yeah, you know, because I think you might treat, you know, you might think twice about, of course, you know, if that, if that like tenoosseous structure is yes. really about to go, you're yeah. not sniffing a cortisone shot, but right. the muscular tennis junction, if it's a little bit iffy, yeah. you're probably gonna hit that area with the cortisone. Right, exactly. Uh, you know, greater healing potential and greater blood supply usually in that area, which is why I think the tears less commonly occur there even in the first place, you know? Yeah, no, that's great. So let's dive into the fun stuff, the PRP and the shockwave. Yeah, it's fun for me, but it might not be fun for the patient. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk about why. Yeah, sure. So um, out-of-pocket cost is one thing that is not that is not fun. Um, so PRP, first of all, taking a step back, platelet-rich plasma, basically what that is, is you show up to my office about a half an hour early, um, you know, there's a blood draw that occurs ahead of time. And that blood goes into a centrifuge, which spins the blood really, really fast, concentrates the platelet layer. We draw that platelet layer only, um, avoiding other types of cells because the platelets are rich in growth factors. And, um, and that is what we inject. So you, we literally are injecting your own medicine um, when we do platelet-rich plasma. And with that in mind, there are some, you know, um, contraindications and maybe some patients that wouldn't be, you know, good candidates for platelet-rich plasma. So those that maybe have pre-existing platelet disorders, um, low platelets, other medical conditions that can result in low platelets, um, you know, we might expect that we might not get as much of a benefit from one of those types of injections. Um, Certain patients that are on medications that affect the platelets, um, even anti-inflammatory, normal NSAIDs, right? Um, I want patients to be off of those for 
first at least seven to 10 days before I do a platelet injection because there's evidence um, uh, in the literature that it affects the quality of the platelets and the concentrations of the growth factors. Um, and I want as much, you know, kind of as much of that um, as I can get um, to, to maximize the potential benefit of the injection. And then there's other things to consider, like, uh, you know, you are injecting concentrated growth, growth factors in an area, which may, uh, you know, including things like uh, VEGF, uh, vascular endothelial growth factor. And, you know, there's a strong role of that, say, in certain types of, of cancer. And so um, patients that have active cancers are usually not candidates for platelet-rich plasma, because again, we just don't want to do anything that could potentially, you know, um, um, make a patient worse, really, at the end of the day. And there's, you know, there's no real solid evidence one way or another. Some providers, you know, especially if it's kind of a blood-based cancer, um, you know, won't, even if you're in remission, they want you to, you know, you would want to be in remission for years, probably, you know, at least a year for maybe more aggressive providers or even longer, um, depending on what the type of cancer is and you know the risk for recurrence. Um, and so that's certainly something to think about with PRP and some of the other orthobiologic injections. That's always, you know, it's part of our standard, you know, things that we would look look at from a medical perspective to decide if people are eligible or not. Um, amongst, you know, some other things. But um, so so that's kind of the gist of PRP. Um, and then, you know, shockwave is. Is, is is not an injection. So it's less invasive. You don't break the skin, you know, with, with shockwave. You're not putting a needle anywhere. Um, you are using a mini jackhammer is how I describe it yeah. to um, try to accomplish similar things to the PRP. So with the PRP, you're injecting those platelets um, that are concentrated in growth factors. You're trying to reinitiate a healing cascade. You're drawing healing cells to the area. Um, you are um, sending signals to help those cells proliferate or, or increase in numbers. And then, you know, eventually that's going to lead hopefully to a healing, um, a, a healing process, and then eventually remodeling as kind of the last stage. And with the shockwave, you're trying to do a similar thing, but with um, extracorporeal, so outside of the body shockwaves, right? And so you're trying to potentially disrupt some of that abnormal blood, you know, the, the like we we're talking about earlier, the abnormal blood vessels or nerves that can kind of um, start to creep into the area in these chronic, chronic conditions, um, as well as bring kind of good blood flow to the area. And again, kind of help that cell signaling cascade in terms of restarting um, a healing process in the area. And so like you were getting at, it's not, um, there's multiple types of shockwave, there's radial and there's focused shockwave. And, you know, um, it's kind of, I'm happy to get into the weeds about it, but it is a little, you know, kind of um, more provider specific and really kind of making those individualized treatment plans um, in terms of when you would use one versus the other versus combined. Um, and and uh, those similar kind of contraindications that I was mentioning before, um, you know, some of those don't exist uh, with Shockwave. So someone might be a better candidate for Shockwave than they would be for, say, an orthobiologic or a PRP type injection. Um, but it, as you can see, I mean, it becomes very nuanced in terms of decision making. And um, additionally, there's the research piece, you know, and, um, and that's always something that 
I'm talking to patients about and I'm talking to other providers about because there is good evidence, you know, especially the lateral elbow um, for the use of, of platelet-rich plasma. So I'm talking about level one randomized controlled trials, you know, where they're compa comparing platelet-rich plasma to a placebo or a, you know, more gold standard type um, type treatment and finding improvements, you know, um, at that usually at the three, three to six month um, time frame. So it's not like steroid where we expect you to get some pain relief in days to, you know, a week or two for peak effect. This is months, you know, it's, um, I usually make you a little worse before I make you better. Um, uh, Cause I'm trying to restart a healing cascade. And that first phase is a little bit inflammatory. Um, and so, and so usually in terms of the benefit that you're trying to see, um, counseling is key here. You know, you're trying, you're likely going to see benefit at probably six, you know, six weeks on the earlier side of things, um, up to really, you know, three months is I think when consistently I start to see, you know, really good, um, results, but even sometimes a little, you know, even sometimes a little longer than that. And, and so certainly then, um, you know, there's the conversation of what, you know, well, would this have just gotten better on its own in that amount of time? Right. So that's the toughest sell. Right. So when you're talking about something that costs, I don't know what a PRP or a shockwave, shockwave is usually what, a hundred dollars a visit or something like that. More than that. All of these are a little bit more, at least, you know, in, in kind of the, you know, system that I'm practicing in the shockwave is a little cheaper usually than the platelet rich plasma, but they're both in the, you'd like six to 600 to like a thousand to $1,200 range. So this is not, it's a pretty penny, you know, yeah, and there's no guarantees. Yeah. And then the shockwave is probably more than one treatment. You do yes. three. Yeah, exactly. It's usually combined and say like a three to five, you know, treatment plan and yeah. everyone is different, you know, whether they charge. So maybe that was what you were getting at, you know, whether they charge per session or yeah. like the price that I was giving is usually, you know, a combined package. Um, so a little cheaper usually. Um, for the for the shockwave, but multiple visits as opposed to the PRP, which um, is one visit, uh, but more expensive. And in terms of timeline for improvement, I mean, I think they're pretty similar. Um, you might have some earlier initial improvements with the shockwave due to desensitization in the area um, that are that are temporary, but kind of the long term healing cascade is the same, right, for both of them. Yeah. I mean, what a tough sell though, because that's, you know, it takes three to six months to get better. And usually yeah. when people come into our offices, they want pain relief now. And I Absolutely. think probably why they're demanding the corrosion shots, yep. they want the wet needles, they want the lidocaine and they want, you know, either PT or something that's, you know, obviously nobody yeah. comes in probably to your office yeah. wanting to do twice a week of PT, but we both know that that's right. the cure, right? Over time, yeah. that's the strength is the key, right? But to get over that, that hurdle of, pain, right? Why they came to see in the first place. I think it's really, it's important for people to know that it's a long game when it comes it to is a long game. these interventions. Yeah. Now, do you ever stack the therapeutics? Will you ever do like a lidocaine injection and then do like the shockwave or is that? No, actually, um, that's how it used to be done to make it a little bit more comfortable even for the patient in a lot of different areas. Sometimes they do local lidocaine injections versus nerve blocks mm -hmm. to, um, to just make the procedure more comfortable and and more comfortable. I mean, people do fine. Um, you know, it's, it's painful, maybe like a six, you, you want it to be a little bit painful, 
um, during the procedure so that you're transmitting enough force through there to really, you know, initiate that healing cascade. So maybe, a, you know, you're aiming for like a six or a seven out of 10 during the procedure. And, um, and then that goes away very quickly afterwards. So short-term pain for long-term gain is what I say. Um, and yeah, so, so in the past, it, the people, physicians and other providers who pre perform this procedure would pair it with, um, uh, you know, some sort of anesthetic, and they actually found uh, worse outcomes um, without it. Some of the thought process being that if you are affecting those, those small nerves in the area and maybe central pain processing, that it is useful for patients to actually feel kind of that desensitization and pain in the area. Um, if, if that's one of the ways that this is working is through kind of a central mediated um, uh, pain effect. Uh, so we don't use that anymore. And actually the same goes for PRP in that when um, the platelets are exposed to lidocaine um, or whatever other local anesthetic that you're using, it can actually um, kind of decrease the their efficacy. And so what I what I do is I numb patients up as much as I can, right up to, to kind of the point where I where I want the platelets to go, whether that's inside of the joint or inside of the, if there's a partial tear in the tendon, say you know with more of the elbow focus. Um, and so I'll numb them up as best as I can, but right where I'm putting the platelets, I don't want anything else there. I don't want numbing medicine to decrease the, you know, the, the quality or the, you know, the response of the platelets. And I also want volume wise, I want to be able to get as much of the platelet in there um, uh, as opposed to just, you know, having, taking up some of that space with the numbing medicine. That's great. And I think that that's, you know, you're talking to the healing points too, like how, yes. how the tendons actually heal. And I think 90% of what I see is the tendinopathy, the tendinosis. And, and yeah, I think, same. because that's the most frustrating thing to treat. Would mm -hmm. you agree? Yeah, I would. I would. And for so, patients too, you know, um, when, when there's that neogenesis of nervous tissue, right? So and what we're talking about for people who don't know the, the words that we're using is nervous tissue literally builds around the infarct, wherever the pain is happening, and it's sending pain signals to your brain. So what I asked Haley was, you know, do you, can you, can you analgesic, can you add an analgesic to make the symptoms less? Uh, and what she's saying is that when you do that, it's blocking, blocking that kind of communication with the spine so that we, mm -hmm. we actually want the nerve roots to be exposed so we can hit them and make sure that they get the good, they can actually heal um, and not be continuing to, you know, that positive feedback cycle of the the substance P to, the, to your brain. We don't want that. Yeah. So let's talk about, we've talked about tennis elbow for now. I feel like we talked for another hour. I know. I, where did it's the so time It's so complicated go? though, isn't it? So it's so, it can be so difficult to treat. Um, when are you referring to, to a surgeon? Yeah. Usually when I kind of hit the end of the road, um, whatever that is for the patient, you know, um, and, and it, it is different for everyone. So, um, I, and as it, even as it relates to my surgical colleagues, there are some who feel that this is a non-operative condition and they do not do these, you know, they do not operate or do debridements or, you know, anything on, on this diagnosis. And then there are many, many others that do, um, and feel that, you know, it can help those patients with refractory symptoms that just aren't responding to conservative care that just are not able to tolerate it due to, you know, the amount of pain that they have. And no matter what I do, I can't get them over that hump, so to speak, where they can really make progress with an eccentric strengthening program. Um, and so, you know, I don't have a solid answer for you. It, dif it differs for everyone, but um, certainly I'm trying a, a comprehensive conservative 
treatment program, uh, plus or minus, you know, some of these lesser invasive injections, or, you know, depending on what the patient wants and what their desires are and, you know, everything else, um, maybe some of the, maybe shockwave, maybe PRP, other orthobiologic considerations. Um, and then, you know, at any point when a patient gets fed up, I offer them, you know, a consultation with, with my surgical colleagues at any point, even early on, it's fine. Um, talking to a surgeon is not signing up for surgery. And so, um, you know, I, I appreciate their expertise and sometimes like having that conversation for the patient is, is really what they need. And they'll come back and say, yeah, no, I don't want to have surgery. Or they'll say, yeah, I feel like that was a good fit. And, you know, I'm done with this. I'm going to, I'm going to do this, but you have to understand that there's a rehabilitation you know, process post-operatively too. Right. Um, uh, and so it, it doesn't, it doesn't eliminate, you know, some of the work that you have to put in. Sure. Um, and so, yeah, it, it, it varies. What are the surgical, what are you looking at? What are you saying for outcomes, surgery versus non-op? Um, I mean, I would say that the vast majority of patients are able to avoid surgery, vast, uh, you know, um, probably 90 plus percent of patients. When you think about one to 3% of the population being affected by, you know, this condition um, on an annual basis and the amount that actually, the number that actually have surgery for it, you know, it's, it's the, the vast, vast majority do not, this is a non-operative condition. Um, but I would say that for those that do end up having surgery, the outcomes are generally very good. Um, and I think part of that depends on your surgeon and, you know, how you, how you, um, how you set the expectations, you know, it's all about expectation setting, I think. And, and that's why it's nice to know and work closely with my surgical colleagues, because, you know, I can counsel the patient ahead of time about, you know, what to expect and, you know, how the conversation is going to be and what the approach is going to be like, and a little bit about the post-operative rehab and things like that. So they can go into the conversation a little bit more prepared and um, really kind of hone in on the questions that are important to them. Yeah, and I think that's super important, Haley, just to juxtapose to the, to the non-op options, right? So I think when people understand that it's still going to be three to six months to recover from an elbow surgery, and that's what they're looking at for what we're doing, you know, non-op, you know, non, um, non-operatively, I think mm-hmm. that's really, you have to put both side by side so people can make an educated choice. You know? Absolutely. Absolutely. At the end of the day, I think that's both, you know, any medical provider's job is to just give the patient information so they can make the best decision for them. Right. And so, um, I think the more, the more information, the better to a certain extent, as long as, you know, it's like, there's a lot of misinformation available out there on the internet, but if you have a provider that you trust and someone who knows, knows their stuff, then, um, yeah, all I, all I try to do is just let people make the best decisions for themselves. Yeah. And then it's rapport, right. And it's kind of building that trust. You know, I think when you know, you know, your patient well enough, you know, which route they're supposed to go. You know, I think that, and people need that, you know, I think a lot of times, and, you know, I'll I'll just use my, you know, my wife went to, you know, obviously she's pregnant. She went to the OB and there were a couple different options for something. And she's like, well, you're the OB, you know, tell me what to do. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, you should know me well enough after doing your subjective screen as to what you think I should do. And I think that there's definitely a role for that, but you also want to have the options, right? You want to know what else is out there so that you don't feel like you're, you haven't been exposed to, to your options too. I think that's huge. Agreed. Um, I can't believe we're coming up in an hour here. That's crazy. I don't know what you're like for time. Um, we have, we could, do you have a few more, we have a few more minutes if you want to, Yeah. I know you have some controversial topics here, here. 
I mean, we could talk about Tommy John. I mean, controversy, yeah. <laughs> spinal manips, all that good stuff. I know we have so many great things to still. So I, you know, so I read research, and you know, they exposed the Spinal Manipulation Institute. So I'm certified yeah. in earth, dry needling in the spinal manips, and there's, and even through MGH with my um, orthopedic residency. You know, there's research that if you manip a thoracic spine, you're immediately reducing pain scores in lateral epicondyle and in the knee, um, which is incredible. Just, and I think it's just the role in the uh, sympathetic nervous system response. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit? Of, I don't even know if that's kind of along your purview, but can you talk a little bit about the sympathetic responses and that's? Sort of yeah, thing? I would say you know some of my um, some of my DO colleagues um, have a little bit more experience in OMM or osteopathic manipulation um, techniques, and so probably would be better you know um, able to speak to that than myself. Um, for at least in my mind, I think about again, the kinetic chain and how restrictions, even if they're in restrictions in the trunk, even if it is like in the thoracic area, which is not directly connected to the elbow, obviously, but um, certainly if you think about say a pitcher on the mound and the forces that are having to be generated up through the entire, you know, through the legs, through the hips, through the entire trunk, um, you know, and then ultimately to, you know, to the elbow. Um, I think that, in that way, in that biomechanic sense way, it kind of can make sense to me um, where you're improving movements in biomechanics and other areas that are having you know, positive effects uh, downstream or upstream. Um, but beyond that, it, it's a little bit outside of my area of expertise. What I generally tell people, and this relates to kind of chiropractic care, you know, osteopathic manipulation, other manipulative techniques, acupuncture, um, if it's helping, I am all for it, you know, um, and whatever kind of a patient kind of wants to avenue a patient wants to explore. I think it's, it's worthwhile. Um, if it helps great, if it doesn't, then you've tried it. And, um, it's probably not something to continue on, um, especially if it's always just, you know, a very short term kind of improvement, but certainly on the front end of things, if it can, if it's, if it's helping you especially tolerate the physical therapy piece or return to sport or things like that, um, I think it's useful. That's great. Let's talk about, uh, young female athletes, gymnasts, dancers, cheerleading, elbow, yeah. shoulder, wrist pain. Uh, how yeah. are you managing those athletes different? Yeah, it's tough. It's, it's a, it can be a tough patient population to manage, especially if they get to the point where, you know, they have developed some, um, you know, stress injuries in the elbows or, or you know, osteochondral defects, you know, things like that. It, it, it's tough. And really um, what you want to do is prevent that from ever happening in the first place, if you can, because once it's, once you have it, it's hard to manage. And, um, you know, to your point, so it's these athlete athletes that weight bear, you know, through their upper extremities and maybe have a component or are at higher risk for um, hypermobility or generalized laxity um, that uh, are putting even more force in an abnormal way through those, through the, through the joints um, and through certain areas of the bone. Um, and so, Really, I really at the end of the day, it's the prevention piece. Like I said, if you can, and the same thing goes for UCLs and, you know, like all of these, what are overuse injuries, um, usually uh, for the, for these athletes, if you can prevent the overuse in the first place, then you're going to be in a much better spot. Um, I think that a lot of times 
for whatever reason, you know, there's a lot of um, sports are fun and they're competitive, right? And you want to win and um, parents want to win and coaches want to win. and Everyone wants to win. And it's easy to kind of get wrapped up in that and think that, you know, maybe earlier sports specialization or, you know, winning one specific tournament or something like that is going to have um, potential long-term benefits, you know, either for collegiate sport or whatever, um, kind of beyond and kind of get wrapped up in that. But really at the end of the day, what's going to have the best um, overall impact on the athlete and allow them to compete at the highest level for the longest period of time is injury prevention. Um, you know, certainly there are instances where there's a, maybe a college recruiter present and, you know, it's a little bit of a unique scenario, but for the most part, at the end of the day, um, avoiding early sports specialization, I think is key. There was a recent article that was published, um, that looked at collegiate athletes. And I think less than 20%, less than a fifth reported early sports specialization before the age of 15. So um, if you can diversify, you know, the sports that these young and adolescent athletes are playing, number one, it, it prevents burnout, athlete burnout, uh, which is getting more and more attention and is so important to consider um, uh, from both a mental health and a performance perspective. Burnt out athletes do not perform as well as athletes who are not burned out. Um, so, 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 diversifying the sport uh, participation helps prevent um, helps prevent burnout, but then also helps prevent overuse injuries. You're allowing, I mean, it, you know, it makes sense, right? You're, you're giving the tissue a break and you're also using other muscles um, to, you know, if you're, if you're, say you're a runner, right? And all you do is run long distance. Um, you're so, so that your glutes, your core, uh, they're not, they're not strong. And if you can incorporate some lateral sport, you know, maybe you play soccer for a little bit, or maybe you, you know, lift, lift weights and focus on that in the off season or do some plyometrics or, you know, you are, um, you're going to improve your performance in your main sport and you're going to prevent injury. So I kind of got on a tangent. I mean, I, I feel so passionate about this, you know, um, but yeah, I, it's just the prevention piece that is so key because once you have a weight bearing, someone who weight, uh, an athlete who weight bears through their upper extremity and has um, joint hypermobility or laxity, um, you're in a tight spot because uh, it's really hard to offload the bone and you can't necessarily um, tighten up those, those soft tissues, right? That's just how they are. Um, over many decades, the, you know, the laxity will probably improve, but not over the short course over the short term. And so, um, and so, yeah, it's just, uh, and then it, and then it falls back onto kind of the, you know, relative rest, strengthening up, you know, the whole kinetic chain, making sure you can offload the joint as much as you can, giving bone time to heal. Um, uh, a lot of those same principles that, you know, apply to apply to everything. Yeah. You know, and it's funny, it's, you know, I think Lyle, Lyle McKaylee wrote an article probably a decade ago now, but, or, you know, it was James Andrews yeah. about taking one season off a year, right? Yes. Like you would think that that's the craziest thing in the world for, you know, a, you know, a three letter, you know, a three-star athlete or whatever. Yeah. Um, but you just have to, I mean, yeah. you know, that's what I tell every parent comes in with, 
you know, the next Pele or the next like all-star yeah. gymnast, you know, in soccer, I see it in soccer, you know, gymnastics dance too. Um, but really the specialization starts at like five or six years old in soccer. Wow. And I, I try to, Haley, I try to, you know, say to these parents, like, you know, it's great. The skill piece is really important, but, you know, if you're not, if they're not playing different sports, you know, they're never getting exposed to, you know, to different mm -hmm. environments and, you know, their lateral chain, you know, just like you were saying, poster chain, yeah. lateral chain, you know, different sports stress, different things. And I think Absolutely. that's an education. If, you know, anybody takes anything out of this interview, that's yeah. a huge piece for, you know, and plus, and, and I love the stat that only 20% of college athletes before the age of 15, 15. play only one yeah. sport. Right? Yeah, um, right. that's what you mean by sports specialization, I think, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, exactly. So Where you focus on, on one sport, you play it. I think the definition is like eight or nine, more than eight or nine months out of the year, you're playing that one sport. Um, baseball, I mean, there's sport. tons of year round leagues, you know, two, you know, two or three teams at the same time, exactly, especially thing. over the summer months. And that, you know, that that brings me back to the elbow a little bit and UCL and kind of the throwing injuries and things like that, where, um, where the, you know, avoiding early sports specialization is key, allowing recovery days, days off, you know, seasons, months off is so important. But then in the season, you know, really having um, accountability for your own, you know, for the, the athlete themselves when they get to a certain age and, you know, the parents and the coaches, you know, when they're, when they're younger than that and all the way through, but really having accountability as it relates to these overuse issues and respecting pitch counts and making sure they're actually keeping track of them. And, um, you know, maybe delaying the, you know, throwing the breaking balls and, you know, though that there's more, more evidence lately that the velocity actually correlates more to, um, UCL than even, you know, the, the type of pitch. Um, so I, there are all these things to, to take into consideration. And I think just trying to, um, just because, you know, I don't know, I still think that the most important thing in allowing a kid to reach their full athletic potential is keeping them healthy. Um, and, uh, and that means injury prevention and avoiding overuse injuries, um, for the most part. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I could, I could talk about this for another hour. <laughs> I, know, I mean, but it's just such an important point to parents who are listening is that your, your child can still be excel at a sport, yes. because especially as they hit their teenage years, they're starting to develop motor pathways that are brand new, right? They're new and their skill set. They're going to be able to extend, expand their skill set anyways. Yeah. So mm -hmm. allow your kid to be a kid. You know, allow yeah, your absolutely. And play and do experiment with different sports. Yeah. They have to play and soccer. fail, you know, maybe yeah. they have a sport that they're not quite as good at, but they love, you know, and, um, and that's so great to mix in and builds, you know, a lot of other different types of qualities, thinking about mixing up team sports versus individual sports. If you have a, kid that's a runner or a swimmer, you know, or, um, whatever, maybe, maybe getting them, you know, in the off season into a team sport, which has been shown in, you know, some studies to really facilitate even improved, um, you know, social support, mental health, um, because they have that more of a built-in community, you know, um, just trying to switch it up and trying to have fun with it. You know, it's, if the, if the child is, you know, talented enough and certainly there's a luck component and you know many other factors that come into play but um it, you know for the most part if they're if if they're gonna be um you know able to play at that high level uh they're gonna be able to do that 
regardless of whether they played all year or if they played for a season. Um, and so just like you said, remembering their kids and to have fun and to take the pressure off, you know, um, uh, for certain seasons and, and periods of time, I think is just so important. Yeah, that's great. I feel like we should have a whole different podcast on. Yeah. <laughs> it's like sports related youth injuries. I yeah. spent an hour on epicondalgia. <laughs> I know. Oh my gosh. I didn't but think I could so talk for 30 minutes so about common. epicondalgia. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. But uh, anything else you wanted to touch on? Uh, I want you to, so how can people get in contact with you if they have any, any, really anything? Yeah. You treat everything. You don't just treat the elbow. Yeah. Right. I know. Um, you know, I, I, so I, I primarily practice, I'm at, I'm at Spalding and I'm at Mass General. Um, I primarily uh, spend my time in the Mass General Sports Medicine Clinic here on main, at main campus or I'm not at uh, MGH West in Waltham a couple days a week as well. So, you know, I, I migrate a little bit and um, it's the same number that you can Google it. Um, it's just the Mass General Sports Medicine Center. And um, I have a lot of awesome colleagues too. Um, like I said, just in a multidisciplinary team. So, um, you know, I, I think that uh, for anyone that's just hoping to get more information or better insight, second opinion, just run kind of their thoughts, you know, on, on treatment plan by someone, um, want more of, you know, kind of an evidence-based treatment plan or something like that, anything like that, you know, come see me, um, come see one of my colleagues. I mean, we're, I think we're pretty nice. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think that in general, we really try to, you know, take really good care of people. So. Well, I think through this phone call, I think anybody who listens knows that you, you care about people and, and you put the patient first and, and that there's not just you, but you have a whole team around you to, to yeah. support you know, a salubrious outcome, which is great. So, uh, yeah. Haley, thanks again for joining me today. And Thank you so much for having me, Sean. It's been yeah. really fun. Yeah. Sorry for, uh, keeping you an extra, extra 15 minutes. Don't here. worry. I just, I, you know, I, 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 it's a great, it was a great conversation. So thank you again. Yeah. Thanks so much for your time and, uh, have a wonderful weekend. You too. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. All right. Thanks, Haley. Thanks again for tuning in to the Hooked on Health podcast with your host, Dr. Sean T. Lorden, author of The 11 Winning Secrets to Stop Beijing in Its Tracks, and owner, private practice owner of Concierge Physical Therapy in Sutton, Mass., and soon to be Westboro, Mass. Thanks again for tuning in. <laughs>